Do you ever watch someone's train wreck of a life and think that could never be me? In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks a lot about false teachers who proudly proclaim heresy, who live in lust, who gorge themselves in greed, and had tried to deceive other people into their self-religious schemes. You might listen to a description of people like that and say, they are that way. They must just never have heard about Jesus. I don't need to worry that that could ever be me. But then we see some phrases that should make us pause and take a second look. In chapter 2, verse 1, Peter describes the false teachers as coming from among the people and denying the master who bought them. And in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, if they are again entangled in them, them being the defilements of the world, and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them from the first. And in 2.21, he speaks of them turning away from the holy commandment handed on to them. So, if people can hear God's word and walk with God, at least for a while, through the knowledge of Jesus, and then turn away, what about you? Peter is continuing what we looked at last week about the prophetic word. There are true prophets and God's true word. Then there are false prophets and Satan's false word. Peter wants us to know the difference, to see the judgment that comes on false teachers, to watch out for ungodliness in our own character. We see this uh, chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He wants us to be on guard against falling ourselves. He says this a little bit later in chapter 3, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. The application or the command that Peter gives based on chapter 2 comes in chapter 3, and that's because the book is a whole. It's not just chapter 2 or just chapter 3. But what we're going to look at today is just these characteristics in chapter 2. But in light of what he's going to say in chapter 3, I think this is the point that he is giving us here. Know the path to falling away so you don't stumble down it. Know the path to falling away so you don't stumble down it. Falling away starts at home but leads to judgment. Falling away starts at home but leads to judgment. I say it starts starts at home based on verses 1 through 3. In Old Testament times, false prophets arose even from among God's own people. When you have in Ahab's day prophets of Baal, those weren't necessarily ones that he had imported from the Canaanites. Some of those, at least, were prophets from among God's own people, perhaps even the majority of them. There are false prophets who would come and give him messages that he wanted to hear. And then there were a handful of true prophets that actually spoke God's word to him. That's just one of many examples of false prophets. We see another one a little bit later in the chapter, and that is Balaam. And uh, we'll talk more about him when we get to him. But there were false prophets from among God's own people in Old Testament times. False prophets or false teachers arise among God's people even now. He says, false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. This this will happen despite an apparent relationship with Jesus. says here, denying the master who bought them. As best anyone can tell, these are people who love God, follow after God, are encouraging other people to follow after God, and yet Peter says they are introducing destructive heresies in by their word and life denying Jesus himself. This then leads to destruction, it says, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. 
False prophets will lead many astray, but God will judge those false prophets. Their sensuality will be attractive. Many will follow their sensuality. Who doesn't want a message that says, do whatever you feel like and God is still happy with you? The truth will be spoken badly of. It says the way of the truth will be maligned. Quite possibly the sort of arguments that people bring up over and over again. Uh, Hey, you follow Jesus, but what about the Crusades? Church did a terrible thing there. Well, I mean, a response to that would be, it wasn't our church, and that was a long time ago, and that doesn't change what God has said. But maybe the one that hits a little bit closer to home is, everybody at church, you're all hypocrites. And there's a sense in which the right response to that is yes, but by God's grace, less so every day. And there's a sense in which, even if we are, that's not a reason to ignore the truth of what God's saying. But when there are false teachers who say, walk in a sensual lifestyle, that leads to the truth being undermined because people associate them with true followers of God because they bear the name Christian, even though there's nothing to support that in the way that they're living and in what they're teaching. These false teachers will exploit them and deceive them. It says they will exploit you with false words. Nevertheless, God will judge them. His judgment is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So here's the point that I'm trying to make from these first few verses. Falling away is not a distant problem. It's something that we need to be on guard against even in our own congregation and in our own hearts. Falling away leads to judgment. We see this very clearly in verses 4 through 10. First example, God punished angels. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Sometimes we think there's Satan and all the angels he led in rebellion against God, and they're all wandering around the earth, roaming freely, doing whatever they want. But the reality is there are a significant number of them that God has basically imprisoned and shut up for the day of judgment and that is a direct result of their sin. So the first example that Peter gives is, if God punished angels, God will punish those who reject his truth and go their own way. Then he talks about the world in Noah's day. God punished the world but preserved Noah. What sort of things were going on when he talks about here in verse 5, did not spare the ancient world, brings a flood? What sort of things were going on in Noah's day? Genesis 6-5 describes it this way, every thought and intent of their heart was only evil continually. That's what Noah's day was like. That led to God's judgment. God didn't just say, I feel like doing a flood today. I'm going to bring a flood. It was direct in response to the pervasive corruption of the entire people on the earth. God's judgment was thorough. He said, I will blot out man with the exception of Noah and his family. In contrast to this, Genesis 6-8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others and brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. The third example that Peter gives, God punished Sodom and Gomorrah, but rescued Lot. What was that situation described as? In Genesis 18, verse 20, the outcry of their great sin has graved before me. Like this is a huge problem, the cry of it has ascended to heaven. Abraham intercedes and pleads with God, 
And God says, I will not destroy the city on account of the ten. If there can be found ten righteous people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, I will spare it, though the rest of them absolutely deserve judgment. Then we have Lot, the one that God rescues, who Peter describes here as righteous. How does Lot behave in the moments in Genesis chapter 18? In Genesis 18, uh, the angels appear, they walk through the city, they come to stay with Lot. The men of the city, young and old, say, bring these men out that we may basically rape them and do what we want with them. Lot's response is no. Here's my daughters instead. It doesn't seem like the actions of a righteous person. We'll talk more about that in a moment. His behavior before God and his testimony of following God was such that when his sons-in-law hear him say, you need to leave this city, it's about to be destroyed, it says it seemed to them as if he was joking. His own wife, as they're fleeing the city, is filled with such longing and desire that she looks back at the city, despite God's warning, leave, run, don't look back, get as far away as you can. And Lot's arguing about how close can we stay, it seems like really far to have to travel this distance. Lot's wife looks back, God turns her into a pillar of salt. And then his daughters, at the end of the chapter, have sons by their father Lot. Lot didn't appear righteous, and yet Peter describes him as oppressed and tormented by his daily experience in the city. If Peter uses Lot as an example... I think it shows us that our understanding of who is righteous and who is not is not as neat and tidy as we would like to suppose. But at the same time, we shouldn't hold Lot up as the example of a righteous person either. Why does God in the end rescue Lot? God rescues Lot because of his promise and blessing in connection with Abraham. Lot is Abraham's nephew. Abraham, I think, is probably interceding for Lot when he says if there's ten righteous in the city... And so in response to Abraham's faith, which salvation only comes through faith, God, I think, spares Lot from judgment in sort of the reverse of the ship was going to go down with Jonah and all the ungodly sailors in it. So God spares Lot because of Abraham's intercession, even though Lot didn't entirely deserve it. And if Lot was in fact trusting in God to some degree, despite all of the sinful choices that he had made. But still, we don't hold up Lot as the example of what we sh how we should live, what we should follow. But if God can rescue Noah, Noah who gets off the ark, plants a vineyard, gets drunk, lays naked, creates this tension and division in his family. If God can rescue Lot, who's living in Sodom and Gomorrah from all outward appearances of what we read in Genesis, having no problem doing so, then God is gracious to sinners, but God will also clearly punish sinners who do not repent. So verses 9 and 10, God rescues the godly, but punishes the wicked. What should our response be to this? Don't lose hope because you are a sinner, but at the same time, heed the warning if you, like false teachers, keep 
indulging the flesh and being greedy and all these other things we'll look at in a moment. Falling away starts at home by the culture of our church and the nature of our homes. What I mean by that is if our attitude towards sin is no big deal, let's just let it go. If our attitude towards sin is I'll deal with it later. If our attitude towards sin is I will cover it up. That will promote a culture that leads to people falling away and then 10, 15 years later, they're no longer a part of our church. We say, what happened? And in that moment, I think the easy answer would be, well, they just didn't know Jesus. Which may well be true if they never repent for the rest of their life. And yet, if we jump immediately to that answer and try to push aside any responsibility or any impact that our decisions did or didn't make on that outcome, we can misuse truths to avoid responsibility is the point that I'm trying to make. Falling away is not just from outside influences. When I was younger and in a lot of churches somewhat similar to ours, I think there was this big emphasis on verses like uh, the one in Corinthians where it says evil communication corrupts good morals, something like that, right? And there's sort of this attitude when I would go and visit older folks whose grandkids and great-grandkids weren't in church anymore. These were folks in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. They, they didn't, their family weren't in church anymore, and they would say, what happened? They went to a Christian school, or they went to VBS every summer, or all of those sorts of things. If we think that this is something that only has to do with other people and the danger only comes in from outside and the danger can't arise within our own hearts by the way that we live and the things that we do or don't do and teach and the example that we set for our families, then I think we're missing the point of what Peter is saying here. There is hope and forgiveness and restoration if we look back on the course of our lives and we say, here are specific things that I did in the raising of my children or in my testimony of the people around me for the last however many years that have then led to the extent that I impacted it to them not walking with God. And in the same moment, we can find that God offers forgiveness and hope even though we can't go back and redo all those choices, from this moment we can say, I will do what pleases you, I will pray fervently for you to intervene, and all of those sorts of things. So if you have wrestled with some of these things and you say, I wish there were things that I had done differently in the kids that I taught with Sunday school or even with my own kids or whoever else, I'm not trying to excessively burden you with guilt that you may already have had to deal with before God. At the same time, if we have things that we have made poor decisions about in our, the course of our lives, and we have opportunity to have impact on some of those who, as best we can tell, have wandered away from the faith right now, and we take no steps to say, what will I do differently from this point forward? And we just sort of glibly wander through life. 
then I think we're not feeling the weight of what Peter is saying here. These aren't false teachers that came from way over there into the church. These are false teachers, people who fell away from God from in the assembly. God can save you when you're 80. God can save you when you're 40. God can save you when you're 5. So I'm not saying lose hope and give up on those who used to come to this church and aren't here now and aren't in any church that God will never intervene and God will never bring them to salvation. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying the impact that we have on the people that are around us right here and now the ongoing impact that we have on people who used to be here, that's something we should take seriously. Falling away in the context of the false teachers in 2 Peter 2, I think very importantly as well, shows evil character, not lack of knowledge. And this too, I think, is part of the problem that sometimes arises in churches we think if you know what is true, you're, so, you're good, you're safe, everything will be fine. So the solution is good teaching, and then everything will turn out well. Sometimes that's from a misunderstanding of that verse in Proverbs that says, train up a child in the way he goes, he should go, when he's old he won't leave it. That's a general principle, not a promise, first of all. Or perhaps just more broadly, it is because it is easier to teach people facts than it is to do the hard work of dealing with sin in our own lives and setting a godly example and asking forgiveness of those around us and all of those sorts of things. It's much easier to say, just know the right things. Do as I say, not as I do. But what's the end result of that? a just accusation of hypocrisy or a, I don't want no part of this because it's not doing any good for you. What, should, what good can it do for me? So knowing the right things is not enough. What is the evil character that we see revealed about false teachers in this passage? They are cast down by their pride, daring, self-willed, reviling angelic majesties at the end of verse 10. Rebuking demons in your own power is a dangerous game, even if you say Jesus' name in the middle of it. Example that comes to mind is in Acts chapter 19. Paul has been casting out demons by the power of the Spirit. Seven sons of a Jewish priest say, hey, this seems like a good thing. Let's go and cast out this demon from this guy that we know down the street. They go into his house. They say, by Paul's Jesus, we adjure you to come out. The demon says, I know Paul, I know Jesus, I don't know you guys, you don't believe him. He beats them up, throws them out in the street naked. Great fear falls upon the people in that town because they recognize that God will not be compelled by just saying his name as though you can invoke it in a magic ritual. It's not get the formula right, cast out a demon. It is, do you actually believe in the God whose power you are claiming and are you willing to submit to the possibility that it may not come out the first moment that you say something? Because that's the problem that Jesus' disciples had, right? Jesus says this kind doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting. So even Jesus' own disciples had the same attitude. Of course we can do this. And the pride crept in, and they couldn't. So rebuking demons or angelic majesties in your own power is dangerous. 
Pride is this natural impulse that leads you to destruction like a rabbit into a trap. He says these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. He's saying you're behaving like creatures out of instinct. You just, what's your impulse? I just do it. And it's your pride that blinds you to the foolishness of behaving in that way. Not only are false teachers characterized by pride, but they also pursue pleasure through sexual sin and greed along with deceit. We see this in verses 13 through 16. They party mindlessly. Verse 13. They revel, they carouse. They revel in the daytime. This is in direct contrast to 1 Peter 4, where he said, The time past is sufficient for you to have lived like the Gentiles, sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That was your old way of life. That cannot be your way of life now. False teachers say, I can party and do whatever I want, and everything is great. They party mindlessly. Verse 14, they lust constantly, lie repeatedly, and grasp all the time. Listen to verse 14. Eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. And then in verse 13, the end of it, it said they revel in their deceptions. One of the common themes of false teachers is that there are all these scandals associated with them that are tied to money and to lust. And tied to lying. Those are the constant characteristics of false teachers. And here's the danger. On the outside, they can look like servants of God and sometimes even say things that are true. But their hearts reveal their true motives. The motives are physical pleasure, getting one up on somebody, and getting more for myself. Those are their motives. But on the outside, they look good sometimes. That's where the example of Balaam comes in. Verse 15, They've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Numbers 22, Balaam is a prophet. Balaam is a greedy prophet. Servants of a Canaanite king come to Balaam and say, Hey, Balaam, we want you to curse the people. We'll pay you lots of money. Balaam says, eh, Let me think about it for a day. What should the answer have been? No. But they brought lots of money with them. So Balaam was like, eh, Maybe. They go home. They come back. More money. Balaam's like, no, and I would never, not for all the gold and silver in the world would I do this, but why don't you stay overnight let me ask God and see if it's okay. The third time they ask, and Balaam's like, God, should I go? Should I not go? And God says, go, but only say exactly what I tell you. Balaam is going down this narrow path, and his donkey stops. Balaam starts beating the donkey, and the, the donkey says, I've got to read this for you because this is astonishing. Verse 
There's a couple of things that amaze me about this story. One is that Balaam doesn't seem to act like this is unusual that he's talking with the donkey. The angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path of the vineyards. When the donkey saw the angel, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place, no way to turn to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, so Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick, and the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Balaam doesn't stop and say, wait a minute, why is the donkey talking to me? He answers. He says, because you've made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And Balaam said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He saw the angel of the Lord standing with the sword, ready to kill him if he kept going. Go back to the beginning of 1 Peter. These, like unreasoning animals, are being dragged down to destruction by their pride. Why did he pick that story? Because it fits very well what he said at the beginning of the chapter. God restrained Balaam by an unreasoning animal because he was acting mindlessly like an animal by pursuing sin. And we might think that the story of Balaam ends there because we tend to just say, oh, the thing about the donkey and move on. But the next chapter, chapter 23 of Numbers, it says that... um, Sorry, not chapter 23, a little bit later. Chapter 25. While Israel remained there, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And we say, okay, that just kind of happened randomly after the thing with Balaam that has nothing to do with him. Chapter 31 of Numbers, Moses says... These, the women, caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones and every woman who has known man intimately, but all the girls who have not known man intimately, spare for yourselves. And you camp outside this camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves, you and your captives, on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify for yourselves every garment, every article, and all the work. Balaam doesn't prophesy against the people of Israel, but gets them entangled in idolatry by saying to the the people of Canaan, hey, invite them over to your feast for your God, have everybody participate in adultery and immorality, and then you can drag them into disobedience and that will bring God's judgment on them. I can't curse them for you, but you pay me enough money, I can, I can get them the same result for you. The false teachers that Peter describes here in 2 Peter chapter 2 are the same way. I think it's sobering to remember that if you sin as a professing follower of God, your problem is almost never, I didn't know that was bad. If you lie, you know that you're lying. If you lust, you know that you're lusting. If you're greedy, you know that you're being greedy. If you're proud, you know that you're being proud. The problem is not, I didn't know that that was bad, so it just happened. The problem is, I didn't care that it was bad, so I did it anyway. God is sovereign, but you and I are still responsible for every thought and word and action. There's all that discussion in Romans 9. There's the point that Luke makes in Acts 2. 
there can be a simultaneous reality that God is sovereign in arranging the circumstances of life so that we're in a specific moment in time and specific things happen, and yet he can righteously hold you into account for every sinful thing that you do because he did that with those who crucified Jesus. And he did that with Pharaoh. And he did that with all of these others. So the question I think we need to ask ourselves when we read this description of the false teachers is not to say Balaam was a terrible guy and move on. It's to say in what ways... Am I like these false teachers that Peter is describing and warning about? Are you and I proud in our supposed service to God? I'm doing this so that people will see me, so I can say, hey, look at me. I love God. Often I love God more than you, so you should look at me. Are you pursuing your own pleasure through sexual sin and greed? Statistically, and I'm not saying this is true, but statistically, most of you in this room, before the time that you die, will have looked at and enjoyed pornography or inappropriate movies or whatever else. Statistically, most of, a significant portion of us in, in this room will have committed adultery or all of those sorts of things. And I'm not saying that's true in your life. I'm just saying, statistically, the church is not a whole lot better than the world in broadly professing Christianity compared to people who say, I don't know God or follow him. Then we know that you can't trust statistics. A lot of them are made up. And a lot of people who are professing Christians and saying, I live this way, clearly shouldn't be considering themselves professing Christians. That being said, given that those things are true, Given that our society is geared toward greed, never like the thing that you have, always get a different thing. Get rid of this car, get a better car. Get rid of those clothes, get different clothes. Get rid of that house, get a different house. Get rid of that job, get a different job. Never be satisfied, never be content, never be happy with anything that God has blessed you with. Always want more and more and more and more. Here's the thing. We tend not to think that greed and lust have anything to do with each other, but they're very closely related. The same sort of greed that says I have to buy more and more and more and more is the same sort of impulse that in our heart says I'm not happy with the wife or the kids or the whoever else that God has given me in my life, so I'm going to pursue this relationship instead, even if God said I can't. And the driving force in those decisions is not lack of knowledge, because we all know that those things are wrong. It's not usually even like not knowing the consequences of what happens, because how many times do we see on the news every single day, this person cheated on that person, this person split up from that person, and the occasion of it was this sinful thing that the person did. It's not like we don't know that it's wrong. It's not like we don't know where the consequences go. It's that we say, I want what I want no matter the cost. Pride that says, nothing can touch me. Desire that says, feeling good and what I want is more important than what I know to be right, no matter what the consequences are. Which then inevitably leads to deceit, because then we have to try to cover up the wrong that we're doing so that we can continue in a position of pride that says, I'm someone everyone should look up to. 
if any of these are true of you, if any of these are true of me, we need to stop lying to ourselves and to other people that things are fine between us and God. We need to repent no matter how hard it might be and turn to Jesus, either for the first time because we never began to know him or back to him because we've been wandering far away. This isn't just people out there. These are dangers we have to watch out for in our own hearts. And if the danger to ourselves isn't enough to motivate us to reject this sort of evil character, when we find it, consider this. As we close with the end of the chapter, falling away drags other people down with you. Falling away starts at home and leads to judgment. Falling away is an issue of evil character, not insufficient knowledge. Falling away drags other people down with you. False teachers enslave others by their own corruption. We see this in verses 17 through 19. They're bound for destruction, springs without water, mist driven by a storm for whom black darkness is reserved. They prey on those who are new or weak in faith. Verse 18, arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from ones who live in error. Somebody says, you know what, I'm done with the pagan way of life. I'm going to follow after Jesus. The false teachers come in and they say, hey, you don't have to give all that up. And they drag them right back to the same sinful life that they had before. They offer a way of life that says, you can do what you want while you pretend to follow God. Verse 19, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. This is the consistent lie of false teachers. If you listen closely enough, it is, you can do what you want and God will be happy with you. Islam and Mormonism say you can have lots of wives and it's just all about your sexual pleasure and your God will be pleased with you. But because it's a religion, people are like, oh, it's fine. Pretty much any cult or like weird commune thing that crops up, there's one guy who's having lots of relationships with lots of different women, but he said this is the path to God. He's found a way to justify what he wants. Those are examples of a couple of things where women get the short end of the stick, clearly, right? Consider various forms of Satanism, Wiccanism, whatever we want to call it. Those are very associated with women saying, I can do whatever I want with my body, but let's pretend that it's a religious exercise. Which is exactly what was going on in the days of Balaam. The Canaanites were committing immorality and they called it worship to their God, and the Israelites got dragged into it too. Or, you say, you know, I'm, I love my husband or my wife, I'm not tempted in that way. The greed that they offer you is you can spend your whole life geared toward the accumulation of objects as the sole purpose of your life, and God will be happy with how you've spent your life. That's what our society says. 
your goal in life is to make lots of money so you can have lots of things, and when you have lots of things, you will be happy. Is that true? It's not true that the more things you have, the happier that you are, because then you have more things to take care of, more things get broken, more stuff needs fixed. Like, pursuing greed as the end of life is this endless pit that we dump stuff into and it doesn't fill it. Just like pursuing pleasure. These false teachers make more slaves to sin because they are slaves to sin. They can't give freedom because freedom only comes from God. It says they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption by what a man is overcome by this he is enslaved. Paul says you were slaves to sin, now you're supposed to be slaves to righteousness. So the question is not do you have a master, it's what master do you obey? Is it God or is it yourself and sin and Satan? And someone can't come and say, hey, I have the path to freedom, I have the true knowledge, I have the way you're supposed to live. If they themselves are trapped in this endless cycle of greed and lust and sin and pride and deceit. Where do these ideas come in? Peter talks about them arising from among the congregation, but where do they come from in our day? Perhaps it's a book that you read, something that you hear on TV or on the radio. I think there has to be a balance in some of those things. Um, There is always going to be some point that we can find to disagree with someone about on a book or on a sermon or on a whatever else. So the goal is not that there is never anything that we disagree with and we only ever read the things that we 100% agree with because we can learn from things that we disagree with. The danger is if we're not comparing and thinking about what it is that we're looking at in contrast or comparison to what the Bible says, then we can easily start to believe the things that these things are putting forth. God wants you to be healthy and happy and rich is the message of a lot of things. Jesus wants you to feel good about yourself. It's the message of a lot of supposed ladies' Bible studies. Jesus wants you to enjoy all your hobbies is the message of a lot of men's Bible studies. Whatever it is, the source, if we start to listen to it and be led astray by it, we are getting trapped just like these other people are already trapped in this endless cycle. Peter closes with this idea, false teachers from among the people are worse than pagans who wallow in sin. I think we expect people who never knew God to do all sorts of sin because they don't know any different. But Peter makes this point, if you turned away from sin for a while and then went back to it, how awful is this? It would be better for you to never hear the gospel than to hear the gospel, start to follow it, and then go back to your old way of life and never come back to the gospel. He closes with this, this striking image eating vomit and wallowing in your own waste is what it looks like to return to sin when you've known something better.
And the reality is that image probably doesn't shock us enough, and so I don't think we should rely on that image to be the thing that motivates us not to go this way. But Peter's just saying this is what it is. So, there is a scenario in which you and I might try to convince others that we have all the answers to theology or whatever else or to life, while at the same time being sort of trapped in this ongoing cycle of sin, whatever it is. We have to find help for ourselves before we can help others. We might find this reality that we think we, we just seem to keep going back to the old sinful habits. We need to find help in God to be free of those things. More broadly, and this I think is Peter's main point, and the point that at least I want to drive home to us now, it's easy to highlight the Joel Osteens and the Paul Crouches and the Beth Moores and the whoever else that's far away. But those people, by and large, don't have a lot of practical impact on our day-to-day lives, except to the extent that we encounter them in a book or whatever. But here's the question I think you and I need to ask each other. If you and I wander away from the faith, whose faith are we going to undermine? Because it's not just going to be our own that is in disaster. It's going to be other people around us as well. And that's on them. Your faith should not collapse because someone else's does. But that often seems to happen. So to sum up the whole chapter, if you see the way of false teachers and reject it, God be praised. Keep doing that. If you are heading down the path to falling away, I pray that God would use these truths to stop you in your tracks and yank you back the other way. If we look, take a long, hard, honest look, we say, yes, there are elements of pride, of lust, of greed, of deceit in my life, and I need to reject those and by God's help put them off. That, this passage should arrest our attention and say, I can't live that way, I've got to go this way. Peter admonishes us to know the path to falling away so we don't stumble down it. All of us are susceptible. Pride is the attitude, lust and greed are the main seed, sins, deceit is the mechanism, The end result is someone falling away and many around that person getting dragged down away from God. Peter says these are sober truths. Pay attention to them. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see more of the hope that God offers to help us be alert to these lies and be diligent to follow God to maturity. But I think we need to park here for a moment and say, why does it matter? Why is it serious? Because of all the things that Peter lays out in chapter 2. Know the path to falling away so you don't stumble down it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths. We pray that we would be warned by them and consider them and focus on them. Amen.